0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. For a word or phrase, rather, that gives me extreme anxiety. Reponde se vous ple. Reponde se vous ple. Now, some of you think I'm speaking in tongues. I'm not, I'm not speaking in tongues. Reponde, save, vous play. Words that give me consternation and anxiety. When I, when I see that, my introverted personality type recoils at the thought of what this means. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm, I'm talking about the RSVP, an invitation. It's, it's the summer. And I'm sure you've gotten several RS, invitations to RSVP by, at this point, you, maybe to a wedding, maybe to a family reunion, maybe to a baby shower or a, a graduation. And, and when I see RSVP, when I see that invitation, something about my introverted personality and an invite to anything just drives me crazy. Some, some of you get, get invitations and, and, and get invited to RSVP to something. You, you fill out the request immediately. That's how my wife is. She likes to do things decently and in order. Some of you fill it, fill it out immediately. You send it right back. You, you, you fill it out and you eagerly, Wait with anticipation for the event that's about to come. Some, some of you are extroverts like that. You can't wait to party. You wonder what, what you're going to wear, who's going to be there. You can't wait to meet some new people. But for all my introverts in the room, we get that RSVP and we just ask God why. How, 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 how could this happen to me, God? You, we, we ask, like, here's what an introvert goes through. How many people are going to be there? Who is going to be there? How long? going to last. And if you have a certain cultural persuasion, you ask, are they going to start on time? <laughs> Lord, Lord, what do I have to wear? Do I have to go and buy a new outfit? God, I don't have enough money to go spend and buy a new tuxedo for a wedding. God, God, I don't even know how to dress to a baby shower. Baby showers used to be for women only. Now they have unisex baby showers. What, 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 what do I do if I get there and I don't know anybody? Now i got to sit in the corner and have an awkward conversation with somebody that I don't even know. You ever had one of those conversations? You get there, you're by yourself, you, you're holding your drink or you're holding your, your food or whatever, and you're just looking around, and some other random stranger walks up to you and starts an awkward conversation, asking you personal questions like, how was your weekend? And the imitation oftentimes can feel like work. It can't feel like, sometimes it doesn't feel like a joyous invitation to something that you'll get to enjoy. Sometimes it feels like it's another thing to do. It it, it feels that way. But sometimes you get an invitation. If you're like me, you, you get this consternation and then once you go, you're actually glad that you went. It actually gives you something that you've been missing. You didn't know that you need a community. You didn't know that you needed to see some friends that you hadn't seen in a while. You didn't, you didn't know that you needed to be around other people. You didn't know that someone would say to you, say something to you that, that would encourage you. And, and so sometimes we get these invitations and it can feel like work. but sometimes the invitation can actually be a blessing to help us flourish. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount extends an invitation. And if we truly don't understand the heart behind what Jesus is putting forth, we will interpret it as a call to do work, a call to do something where what Jesus is actually inviting us to is not a call to do something, but to be something. It's in, the, the Beatitudes, as we know them, is an invitation to a way of life that won't lead to consternation and won't lead to a burden, but actually what Jesus calls us to is an invitation to true happiness and human flourishing. And so we get to the Sermon on the Mount. You know Jesus has been doing his thug thizzle. He's come come from the wilderness and he's come to preach and he's been healing and he's been doing all of these things. And Jesus is is stepping into the stream of the great universal question of how can one attain true happiness and flourish in the world. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes offers us a way of true lasting happiness happiness, and human flourishing. You see, I want to make an observation in the text before we get too far that if you see Jesus and the first thing that it says is that Jesus has, the, the crowd is following Jesus and Jesus goes up a mountain and Jesus takes a seat and begins to teach. But what, does it, what, what doesn't need to get lost in us this morning is that there is a parallel to something else. If we, we know anything about the Old Testament, there is an Old Testament prophet and mediator by the name of Moses, If you recall, before he gives the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up a mountain as well, and God gives Moses a law to give down to the people of God. And so we know Moses as a communicator. He's a mediator uh, uh, between God and the people. And so when God gives Moses the law of God, what he's communicating to people is his character and how they should live as foreigners in a world and how they should represent God. In essence, here's what God is saying to them. You belong to me therefore you are to live distinctively different from the world but not just different for different sake the reason that i'm calling you out to live differently is so that you can live to my glory so that people can see me when they see you and so it's not just rules and regulations and here's how i know that when we think about the ten commandments when god gives the law These are not just rules and regulations because what happens first, here's what he says to him: I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. So what we see is grace precedes the law of God. God doesn't just give you rules and regulations to keep. God saves you, gives you a love relationship with him, and then tells you something, not so you can keep rules, but so that you can flourish in your relationship with him. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, it's not just rules and regulations. Don't forget that God saved them by his grace first. So God never gives us something to do just so that we can have a hard life, but God gives us information and calls us to something for our good and for his glory. Grace precedes the law. And so we see the Sermon on the Mount. It's a fulfillment of what Moses did on Mount Sinai when he handed down the law to the people of God. If Moses was a mediator, Jesus is the greater mediator. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and the ministry of revelation to God's people. Jesus doesn't give us the law, though Jesus gives us the gospel. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? It actually shows us what life is supposed to be like in the kingdom of God. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to be like for followers of Jesus. And Jesus pointing, pointing out to his followers... That we're supposed to be distinctively different from the values and ethics that we see celebrated every day in the world. And so the Sermon on the Mount shows us how we should live in service to our gracious God. How we live in light of what he has done for us. Our lives as believers is a response to what God has already done. So two things... In the invitation on the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's an invitation for us to live our lives to the glory of God. Number two, this is an invitation for us to flourish. This is an invitation for us to thrive as the people of God. It's an invitation to wholeness. When we see wholeness in the Bible, wholeness literally means singularity of heart. Meaning it won't be two versions of us. There won't be the Sunday us in the Monday through Saturday us. It'll be the one person that we're called to be inside and out. There will no longer be a public you and a private you. There will not be a turn up on Friday you and an act like a wallflower at church on Sunday you. So this is an invitation to wholeness. Jesus gives us a vision of the way things will be in the world as a result of our flourishing. And so these Beatitudes, these eight different Beatitudes or blessings, they're, they're blessings. And so some versions may say happy is the man or happy is, but, but, but most versions say blessed are, blessed are. And the Beatitudes are really just the reality of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? What does it look like? We, we should not understand the Beatitudes as do these and God will do this for you. D- do this. And then God will bless you. Don't don't, don't see them that way. You, you shouldn't understand them that way. It's actually a way of being. And so here's what I want you to get. When you read the Beatitudes from now on for the rest of your life, when we see the demands, we understand them in the context of God's grace. See them in the context of God's grace, we should see these blessings as a call, as a grace filled invitation to a deeper heart level relationship with God. If these be attitudes flow from a relationship with God, they don't seem like rules and regulations anymore. They seem like a path to being blessed. These are not rules and regulations. This, you think you want better for your life than God does. But when we try to keep rules and regulations absent of a a love relationship and understanding what he's done for us, it will feel hard. We will think that, man, this is too much for me. This is crazy what God is calling me to. But what God is actually calling to you is the way that you actually can flourish in the world. Let me tell you something. Everything the world puts out before us that that, that makes us think that we'll find happiness and joy and fulfillment is counterfeit goods. It's not real. what Jesus offers us is something that is lasting and this is what it looks like to thrive in the kingdom of God and let me say this you cannot thrive in this world except when you experience a relationship and communion with God we cannot flourish absent of a relationship with God it may appear like you're flourishing after a while but what you see is a generation and culture of people in a rat race because they always need more more money More sex, better job, bigger house, faster car, more, more, more. And it never satisfies. It never satisfies. And so we see this invitation. There are two types of people in the crowd, two types of people in the crowd. They're the committed followers. These are people who are committed to Jesus, and Jesus is telling them this is how we live as a people of God. And then you, the second people in the crowd are the curious. They're curious, but they're uncommitted. They're curious but uncommitted, and Jesus is extending an invitation for them to to know what it really means to thrive in the world, to experience true happiness, a happiness that is not based on external circumstances, not based on external circumstances. And so here's what we'll notice. The first four of the Beatitudes are God-centered. They're towards towards God, God. and what he he says, verses 3 through 6, is this. Bless all the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Here's what you need to know about these, these first four. Here's what you need to know. The first thing we must come to grips with if we're going to thrive and be whole in the world is that if we're going to come to God, we got to come to God empty. You got to come you got to come to God empty. And so when he says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit," sometimes we think he means Poverty as in financial poverty. No, what God is saying is, no, I want you to be poor in spirit, knowing that you bring nothing to the table. Your good works don't matter. Your money does not matter. Your house doesn't matter. Your family doesn't matter. We absolutely bring nothing. You can have 145 degrees and thank God for your degrees, but it means nothing in qualifying you for salvation right? And so we come to God, we have to come empty-handed. We bring nothing because our sin has made us spiritually bankrupt. We don't deserve God's presence. We don't deserve God's grace. And so we come to God, we must realize, God, I bring nothing to the table. We must come to God empty-handed, laying down every crown that we have. It's a confession. Bless all the poor in spirit. It's a confession that, that I, God, I need you. God, God, I can't make it without you. God, I am totally bankrupt. All of this stuff that I've accumulated is just a facade for other people. I'm just actually doing it to floss for other people. But, God, here's what I need, to, here's what I need you to know. I got nothing to bring to the table. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy. I don't deserve heaven, God. And so, God, thank you for taking me as I am. And this is one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and and every other religion. Every other religion says, you bring this to the table and then you'll get this in return. God says, bring nothing. Bring nothing. Bring nothing. Because nothing about us qualifies us for heaven or utopia or paradise or whatever they want to call it. Nothing qualifies us for it. You notice what Jesus says? Luke's gospel says Jesus walks up in the synagogue... Jesus grabs the scroll, and what does Jesus begin to quote? He begins to quote the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to who? To the poor. He's talking about the poor in spirit, people who know and sense that they desperately need God. And what Jesus says at the end of that phrase is, today as you listen to this scripture, it has been fulfilled. And so the poor in spirit has no righteousness of their own, but God gives them the righteousness of his son, and that righteousness is a perfect righteousness. Here's what we need to know. You ever meet somebody and they say, you know what, I'm going to come to church when I get my stuff together. As soon as I stop smoking, I'm a, I'm gonna be down there. As soon as I kick this alcohol, I'm a, I'm gonna come down, there. I'm ushering everything. I'm a, I'm gonna serve the Lord with gladness. As soon as I stop sleeping around, I'm a, I'm gonna get I'm gonna come down. There. I got a few things that I got to work out. I got to get myself together. Newsflash, we can't get ourselves together. Newsflash, we we can't we can't get ourselves together. We we need we need God in every way. We, we need God, and salvation is not something that we earn, not something that we merit. It is the undeserved grace of God that has met us. Ephesians 2 and 2, 8 through 9, never forget this scripture the rest of your life. I love it. It's beautiful. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's Gift not from work so that no one can boast. Here's what God knows about us. If we could save ourselves, we take the credit and move him out of the picture. But salvation is a gift, and this is what the world does not understand about our faith, and we have to do a better job of communicating it. People think we're a bunch of stuck-up people who walk around thinking that we're better than everybody because we go to church on Sunday and we pay our tithe and offering. But what they need to know is that everything that we do is a response to what we've been given by God. My service is because God has saved me. My giving is because God has given to me first. I give him my life because he gave me his life. It's not that we think that we are better. We're just different. We're just different. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted." Now, when he talks about mourning, he's not talking about uh, we lost a loved one mourn. He's actually talking about when we look out over the world and we mourn over what we see. We mourn when we see the condition of our world. Two types of mourning. We we mourn over what we see, the world we live in. When we see a conspiracy to overthrow the government, we should mourn. When we see corrupt leadership in our country, we we, we should mourn. When we see mass shootings happening over and over and over again, I'm scared to pull up my phone in the morning because I'm thinking some kids got shot again. We see mass shootings. We see shootings at schools grocery stores churches like th- this is we sh- that should make us weep do not become desensitized because it's normal no no this is not the way things should be this should remind that we long for something greater this should make us wait with anticipation for, for our king to come and make the crooked places straight, to, to right all of the wrongs, to wipe away every tear, that to know that our suffering is a light momentary affliction, that there is great greater coming for us, that, that Jesus will get rid of cancer and high blood pressure and heart attacks and aneurysms and migraine headaches and all of these different things, that that one day he is coming, there will be no more shootings, there will be no more hospitals, it won't be a need for any of that. It will just be glory and we will enjoy the presence of God so when you see something wrong let that serve as a reminder that something greater is coming that that Jesus promised to come back and he is coming we we should mourn over what we see and I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this and I hope you love me send me your emails but we should mourn we should mourn we should mourn we should mourn we see people even believers out protesting on the internet all acting crazy When a law is changed about abortions. Now if you if you've experienced that and I'm saying I don't I don't I'm sorry, if you know me, you sit under me, I don't skate around, no issues. I ain't ducking nothing. I'd rather you hear it here, from here, than read about it here and have a false reality of the truth. I wanna say this, I'm a black pastor. Our church is multi-ethnic. We got some people in here from all walks of life got Asian, we got Latino, we got Caucasian, we got everybody up in here. But I'm a black pastor and I want to say this. Do you know that since Roe v. Wade was enacted, 40 percent of all abortions have been black, black Americans? 40 percent, almost half? And we're only 14 percent of the population? But we want to protest? And if you've had an abortion, I'm and you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not to condemn you. This is not to condemn you. I'm, I, I, th- this is not, a, this is not judge, judgment, this is not any of this. This is just the reality of the truth. We, we, we how can we complain about police brutality and killing unarmed African American men, but we wanna protest and have a problem when a law is enacted to make it difficult for us to kill more babies make it make sense make it make sense for me make it make sense we should mourn over this 20 million black babies have been killed since Roe v. Wade 20 million we've killed our future I know you don't want me to say nothing but I'm here we're here now I love you enough to tell you the truth. We should mourn over the sins that we see in the world. But even more than that, we should grieve over our own sin. We should mourn over our own sin. Because the person who mourns over their own sin realizes that our sins are a great offense to God. We serve a holy God who cannot stand sin. But we should grieve over our sins. 2 Corinthians 7 10 says this. For godly grief. Produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. We should grieve over our sin. We should turn from our ways. But there's a there's a blessing in our mourning. Here's why. Wow, he says he says he will comfort those who mourn. Here's the truth. The matter. The truth of the matter. We're gonna mourn on this side. We we get we get a lot of mourning on this side. But when he comes back, there will be no more mourning for us who are in Christ Jesus. So we we take our licks on the front end to experience his glory on the back end. The world seems like they get all of the the goodness and joy and fun right now, but they're going to get all the mourning on the other end. And so so we got to put this in its proper context that God is going to turn and do a, a switch of rule on the world. We who look like we're losing, we're actually not losing. We're working up a far greater glory that is coming on the other end. So when you see pain in the world, you experience pain, know that God is going to reverse that at some point. But while we wait, we wait with endurance. Here's what he says, "Blessed are the humble." Humble, your Bible may may say, bless all the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness does not mean weakness. You know what meekness actually means? It means strength under control. Strength under control. Who's stronger, the person who can go off on somebody crazy or the person who can say, I could tear your whole life up, but I ain't going to say nothing. You ever been in one of those situations where somebody was trying you and you know so much stuff about them and you like, I could just, ooh, I could just just go from here to here on you, but I'm going to spare you. You didn't even know you was meek. You didn't even know you was meek. When you didn't go off, you were practicing humility and meekness. But God says that they will inherit the earth. But what makes a person meek or humble is that you got a true estimate of yourself you realize that the only reason I'm saved is by God's grace and by God's mercy. I'm not better than anybody because we're all equal at the foot of the cross, right? And so Christians, we cannot be proud. We The nature of Christianity is humility. By the nature that we said we need God, we exercise humility, knowing that we cannot save ourselves, right? And so it's not just enough to come to grips with our sin and we— dealt with what that looks like to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek those are things that we that we that we do but but then he says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they'll be filled we hunger for something better we hunger we have an intense longing we have an appetite for God we have an appetite to do his will we we thirst and hunger for God this is not some occasional appetite for righteousness this no Jesus is saying this this is a life where we constantly pursue righteousness this is this is not a one-time occasion we want the right thing to be done but this is the this is who we are this is the way we live we th- we thirst and hunger for righteousness, like we thirst and hunger for food and water. Remember Psalm 42? We said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul thirsts for you, that, that for you are the living God. Like, like this is what he's talking about. Like we need God. Like I'm thirsty for God. Like I need to spend time in God's presence. I, I have a desire to read my word today. I, I need to get in touch with God. I can't go another hour if I don't talk with God. I, I have a hunger for him. And, and so when you have a hunger and appetite for God, that is a sign that you are following of the Lord Jesus, but if you're never hungry and you don't have an appetite, do you know that a lost appetite typically is a sign of sickness? When you don't have an appetite to eat, typically that means something's wrong with you. That that means something is off. If you never have an appetite for God, you never want to be in His presence, you never want to go to church, you never desire to read His Word, you never desire to worship, you never have a desire for Him, if you have a lost appetite, something is off. Do you thirst and hunger for God the way you hunger for what's next in your life? Or who's next? Do, do, do you seek after God as much as you seek after relief from hard seasons? You know what we do? We hunger after a lot of things that leave us empty. But we sell ourselves short and we sell god short i want to read a quote to you from the great c.s lewis here's what he said and i think this puts it in proper perspective for us here's what he said it would seem that our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If that doesn't speak to our reality, I don't know what does. We're too easily pleased. And we keep going for the cookies and crackers when God is offering us steak and potatoes. He's offering us filet but we want Snickers and Snickers is cool it'll satisfy for about 30 minutes but if it's the first thing you eat it probably gives you a stomach ache and God offers us something solid something that'll stick to our ribs but we keep going for what is lesser you know what? When we desire God, God won't disappoint us. Psalm 107 verse 9 says this, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Here's what Jesus said in John 6 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's crazy to me. John 7, 37 through 38 says this, on on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture says, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Jesus wants to fill us. He wants to fill us. And he invites us in to sit at his table. And so when we read those first four, this is to be our permanent posture before the Lord. That we come to him with nothing and allow him to fill us with everything. This is to be our permanent posture before the Lord, a posture of dependence. If you want true happiness and fulfillment in life, you have to be completely and totally dependent upon God. He will give us joy, he will give us happiness, he will give us fulfillment if we just recognize our need for Him. This is our current and, and should be our continuous posture before the Lord. And so this is what our relationship looks like with the Lord, with the Lord, the first four does. But you know what? You know what I love about God? God doesn't just say, it's just your personal relationship with me. We live in a generation where everybody says, it's just my, I don't, see, I don't, I don't really do Christians. I don't really do the church. It's just me and my personal relationship with God. I don't deal with church people. It's just, I don't really do people. It's just me and, me and Jesus. Jesus is my co-pilot. If if you're driving, I'm not getting in. Because Jesus doesn't let us be co-pilots. He puts us in the back, we in the back seat. But here's what I love about Jesus. Don't tell people you got a relationship with me. Excuse my language. And you suck at relationships with people. Please don't tell me how godly and how holy you are if you can't get along with nobody. If there's always an issue, there's always some drama, always some nonsense, you can't go nowhere. When people see you coming, they say, oh, here. Who gave her the RSVP? Who invited him? Do, you not, you know, do y'all not remember what happened last, last time we got to, together? But the first four is our relationship with God. But the way we work out our relationship with God is through other people. If this is good, this tends to be good. But if this is always off, You got to go back to the drawing board because something is wrong with this. You got to reassess some things with your relationship with God because you can't say you love me and you don't love my people. I, I want to let Jesus put it in his own words. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Here's what he said. This is not what I said. It's what he said. He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. You can't say you love God and you don't love your neighbor. And guess what? We don't get to pick who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is whoever God puts in our path. Y'all remember the day when you used to borrow stuff from your neighbor? Y'all remember borrowing sugar? We got some burgers. Y'all got y'all got any buns? We ran out of ketchup. Y'all got any any mustard? I just we were making some Kool-Aid in. we only had this much sugar. We need that much. You got any? We Just a little bit. Spoonful. And here's what he says, in the second half. Bless all the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Bless all the pure, and pure in heart, for they will see God. Bless all the peacemakers. I want you to make an observation there. It says peacemakers. I'm going to address that in a second. For they will be called sons of God, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And here's, here's what you need to understand about this idea of mercy. Mercy is actually giving someone relief. We oftentimes, I said this last week, we, we say, oh, I thank God for his grace and his mercy, right? And, and we do, but those are two separate things. God's grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve, when he gives us forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, he gives us joy, he gives us peace. God gives us those things that we do not deserve. Mercy is when God does not give us what we actually do deserve. The problem with our generation is they've convinced us that we des- you deserve the best. We don't deserve anything. The Bible says, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life. And so God withholds giving us what we actually deserve which is death and his judgment and instead God gives us through his son eternal life in him so yes God gives us grace but we thank him for his mercy and so if God has shown mercy to us what do we do we show mercy to other people and here's the thing here's a here's a, here's a challenge for us we oftentimes have to give mercy for people that we don't think deserve it I'm putting my cards on the table I'm not a master of this at all right it is really hard to show mercy to people that should be like, oh right? But our uh towards people, God had a greater uh towards us. But instead of sending us wrath, God sends us his son. So we have to get in the habit of giving people the grace that God has given us and giving them a relief from what they deserve. So we have to have a readiness to forgive. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? It says, but God who is rich in mercy. The Bible doesn't describe God as rich in anything else in the Bible except for rich in mercy. It doesn't say he's rich in money. doesn't say he's rich in anything, love. It just says God is rich in mercy. So if God is rich, and, rich in mercy, our response to that is to be merciful towards other people. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, pure-hearted people. What he means by this is what he means is, is that they are not externally religious, but riding on the inside. They are, Who they are on the inside is who they are on the outside. They, they love God here, and it works itself out in their character in their life. They, they are pure in heart. They have a singular devotion to God. They are sincerely in love with Jesus in both their public and private life. And it says that they will see, they will see God. He then says, Blessed are the peacemakers. So I, I want to highlight this for a second and then I'm going to be out of your way. Notice he doesn't say, Blessed are the peacekeepers. Many of us are good peacekeepers. Because we are conflict averse, I'm me, I'm 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 included into that. And that's that's some deeper underlying issues. But 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 yeah, that's some deep that's some deeper stuff that I got to work out with Jesus. Um, but notice he doesn't say peacekeepers. He say bless our peacemakers. Peacemakers don't say I just want everybody to get along. I'm not choosing sides. I'm just I'm right here with it. I love both y'all. I'm right I'm right here with it. I'm I'm good with you and I'm good with him. But uh, I'm out of this. I ain't got nothing to do with this. I'm a peacekeeper. I just want the peace. But a peacemaker takes two people and says, you come here and you come here. Y'all got to work this out. This is unbecoming of Jesus. Y'all, y'all got to figure this out. You both say you love Jesus, and so there's got to be some forgiveness here. There's got to be some reconciliation here. Why? Because this is what Jesus does for us. God is at enmity with us because of our sin, and Jesus comes in as a mediator. He understands our plight because he was human, but he understands God because he is God, and he brings the two together, and he makes peace where we were once separated from God. And so our response is to take two people who are far away from each other and put them together and tear down the wall of hostility in the same way that Jesus did for Jew and Gentile. God is not looking for peacekeepers. He's looking for peacemakers. Peacemakers. And here's what you need to know. Pursuing peace is a costly pursuit. Because we may have to go through the pain and agony of apologizing to someone that we don't think deserves an apology. See, this is grown-up Christianity. This big boy and big girl Christianity. This is not for the faint of heart. You might have to rebuke somebody. I just want to say this, and I'm, this is, I, just feel like I, I just feel this in my spirit. Sometimes we, we have to be such, sometimes peacemaking happens when we're honest with people about things that we're afraid to be honest with them about. And I'm not saying you got to go with an attitude and tell somebody about themselves. But at some point, we have to be honest with our, with, with, with our friends, with our family and say, hey, mm-mm, this ain't it. Th- this, is, this is not okay. We, we got to pray together. We got we to work this out. But, but we have to be honest with people because we don't truly love people if we're not honest with them and tell them where they are. And so they walk around thinking everything is okay because we would rather be peace." Keepers than peacemakers. Then he talks about persecution, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And I think this binds up all of them. Persecution happens when you have two staunchly opposed value systems here's what i'm gonna say if you are a believer and you've been a believer for a while if you've never run into opposition because of your faith you might not be saved because christianity costs you something i'm not saying you got to cut everybody off but at some point a fork there's a fork in the row and you have to make a decision Right? Because Christianity calls us for, to stand up for things that are not popular. Christianity calls us at times to, to stand against some things that, that our culture and our society believes. And here's what, what I find out. We, because of social media, we end up parroting stuff and sound like the world as opposed to standing up for Jesus. Some of us never post about Christ, but we always post it about nonsense. Right? And some of us, because we're afraid of not being popular... We're afraid that that people will be upset with us. We're afraid to speak the truth and stand up for Jesus. But if you're going to be a Christian, it will cost you something. Do you know when Jesus or when God was calling the prophets, God oftentimes called them to people who he knew that would not listen to his prophets. To to be called a prophet, they they would literally, God would tell them, I'm sending you to these group of people. They ain't going to hear anything that you're going to have. They're actually going to want to kill you because you speak for me. When we look at the apostles in the New Testament, most of these guys were martyred in the name of Jesus. They, they had to die for their faith. When we look at the Bible, we see the first deacon in the Bible, a man named Stephen, he has to take a stand for the faith, and he did it gladly, but it cost him his life because Christianity costs you something. It oftentimes costs us persecution. And so if you walk through your Christian life and you've never offended anybody, but not because you're rude and you're crazy, but offended anybody because of your faith, you might have to reassess and go back to the drawing board. Because at some point, it will cost you friendships. It will cost you places you can't go anymore. You will have to stand up for something at your job. It may cost you some money. It may even cost you some opportunities. And God forbid it costs us an opportunity in an age of ambition. But God calls us to stand for something. But he doesn't just say do it, just to do it. But God gives gives, gives gives us a promise. He says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you. And what Jesus knew and what Paul knew is that we we stand with God, we stand for our faith. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. See, we can't want his glory if we don't wanna walk through his path of suffering. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. But that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so if you come to this and we get to the end here and you say, man, you know what? I, I, I look at these and, and I don't match up to any of these. These are beyond me. I, I can't. I can't. I can't do these. I, I can't. I, 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 I can't do this. I, I, I have pride. I have arrogance. I, I think I bring something to the table. I think. I think all of my degrees qualify me for heaven. I, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I take care of my family. I pay my bills on time. Like, I, I do all of those things. So, so you, you can't tell me, pastor, that, that I don't qualify to go to heaven. I've been a good mother. I've been a good father. I take care of my kids. I take care of my family. I do good for people. You can't tell me that that doesn't merit something in God's economy. The truth of the matter is it doesn't. It doesn't. If you feel like, ah, these are out of reach for me and you fell woefully short. I got good news for you. Jesus accomplishes everything that we could not. If you are not humble and poor in spirit, Jesus is. If you did not mourn and grieve, Jesus did. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus was the one that that thirsted and hungered for righteousness. But he fills us. Jesus is the pure in heart. Jesus shows us mercy. Jesus is the one who brings peace. So we cannot attain any of this on ourselves. But back to point one, we bring nothing to God. But when we come empty, he gives us what we need. This is not for us to do more work, but this is for us to lean into the grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus. So we look at this, we wake up every day and we say, God, this is beyond me, but your grace is sufficient for me. God never calls us to something that he doesn't equip us for. He gives. Peter, Second Peter says this, He gives us everything that we need as it pertains to life and godliness. If you just look at yourself, you're right. You cannot, you cannot do it. But this is an invitation for us to take our eyes off ourselves and lift our eyes to the cross. Jesus died for where we we fell woefully short. We are all sinners in need of the grace of God he extends it to us this is not an invitation to try harder christianity because that's not christianity but this is an invitation to the grace of god and we must be honest and say god i need you god i can't live this life without you i tried and i failed time after time to do it on my own but today god i lean on your grace i lean on your mercy God, God I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be poor in spirit. God, I'm, I'm trying to mourn over my sin. God, God I, I, I want to be more humble. Help me. Help me. And God says, I'll give you mercy in a time of need. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot live this life that he calls us to without him. We need God for God. But that's the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that we are sinners, that, that we, we, but the Bible says that while we were sinners, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for you to get your act together to save you. So today the invitation stands, if you are already a believer and you're in a, in a relationship with Jesus, this is an invitation to grow and lean on the grace of God in whatever it is that he's called you to do th- th- God says my, my grace is sufficient for you I man, I'm, I'm impatient with my kids sometimes I'm, I'm impatient with my spouse sometimes I'm impatient with my family sometimes people at my job they work my nerves I want to represent Jesus at my job but but more than the scripture sometimes I get a Tupac verse in my head if I ain't a killer but don't push me and God says my grace is sufficient Our grace is sufficient. And if you are an unbeliever, you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, your good works earn you nothing. They will fall woefully short. But God extends his mercy to you today. It's an invitation, a free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins on the cross. But God raised him to life. God raising the life. Today, God extends his invitation for us to have life in him. So all eyes closed heads bowed. I want to pray today. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you wonderful week.